On September 20th, Saudi Arabian Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, sat down for an interview with the right-wing US cable news channel Fox News. The Saudi Crown Prince rarely gives interviews. This was his first with the US network since 2019. Fox News host Brett Bayer set the tone of the interview from the very beginning. This is the island of Sindala, the first project in Neom, your Vision 2030. It is spectacular. It is really beautiful. You know, a lot of people have described you as a visionary leader. I talked to a number of your citizens, and that's how they describe you. And you didn't even plant them. That's really how they talk about you. Um, and world leaders are saying the same thing. You've had this transformational change, every aspect of the kingdom, economic, social, cultural... This was not going to be a searing and exploratory interview into the man, Mohammed bin Salman, nor his actions, some interesting and impressive, others horrifying and allegedly murderous. The interview was, in truth, more of a marketing strategy for Saudi Arabia, for MBS and his vision, and also for Saudi diplomacy. A key topic covered in the interview was the prospect for a normalization agreement between the ultra-rich Gulf nation and Israel. What would it take for you to agree to normalize relations with Israel? When uh, there is support from uh, President Biden administration to get to that point, uh, for us, the Palestinian issue is very important. We need to solve that part. And we have a good negotiation to continue. Till now, we're going to see where it will go. We hope that it will reach a place that it will uh, ease the life of the Palestinians and uh, get Israel back, uh, as a player in the Middle, uh, Middle East. There were reports that you had suspended talks. No, no, that's, that's not true. Not true. So you think, if you were to characterize it, are you close? Every day we get closer. Every day we get closer. Ever since the first normalization agreements were signed between Israel and the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco and Sudan, work behind the diplomatic curtain has been ongoing. And recently, the curtain has begun to twitch, giving us a glimpse as to what's behind. This week on The New Arab Voice, why are Israel and Saudi Arabia considering a normalisation agreement? What do they have to gain? What's stopping them from signing today? And will this normalisation be another damaging blow to the Palestinian dreams of freedom? My name's Hugo Goodridge, and you're listening to The New Arab Voice. I mean, obviously, for uh, for the Israelis, uh, they are uh, uh, normalizing with the most uh, influential and, and larger Arab and Muslim uh, country. Uh, this is Joe Macaron. Joe is a global fellow with the Wilson Center's Middle East program. This continued the path of uh, normalization that started a few years ago, whether with the neighboring of Saudi Arabia, but now it's going to be considered uh, major. I'm sure Israeli are... Uh, are hoping this would be potential alliance also against Iran, whether economically or security. I'm not sure the Saudis are, are as much as excited about this uh, as the Israeli are. The Abraham Accords were an important step for Israel. After decades of relative regional isolation, in 2020, a US brokered deal saw the UAE, Bahrain, Sudan and Morocco all open their borders to Israelis and their wallets to joint investments. 
Former President Trump hailed the achievement at a signing at the White House. We're here this afternoon to change the course of history. After decades of division and conflict, we mark the dawn of a new Middle East. Thanks to the great courage of the leaders of these three countries, we take a major stride toward a future in which people of all faiths and backgrounds live together in peace and prosperity. Now, not everything that the President said came true, but it did represent a seismic change in the region. A deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia would arguably be an even bigger deal. Uh, The Israelis obviously see our relationship with Saudi Arabia as being an important uh, reflection of their integration into the region, their ability to uh, be accepted by the, the Arab world as a legitimate player, a partner in the region, uh, and that's important for them. This is Gerald Farstein, former U.S. ambassador and the director of the Arabian Peninsula program at the Middle East Institute. For the Saudis, uh, I think, again, uh, security is important, but also access to Israeli technology. Trade is a considerable motivating factor for both sides. Israel is seeking regional business partners and investors for the country. And Saudi Arabia, in accordance with the Crown Prince's Vision 2030 project, is seeking to diversify its economy and end its reliance on oil exports. If the previous rounds of normalisation are anything to go by, then both sides should get what they want. The Bank of Israeli Statistics reported that Israeli imports from the region more than doubled from $3.6 billion in 2019 to $8.3 billion in 2022. It is anticipated that bilateral trade between just the UAE and Israel will hit $3 billion by the end of the year. There are additional benefits. A signed friendship with Saudi Arabia would set Israel up with one of if not the most influential and powerful players in the Arab and Muslim worlds. Security is a big part of it, again particularly for Israel. A deal signed with Saudi Arabia would be another potential friend on their side when it comes to confronting Iran. The Saudis too can benefit in the security sphere, with great opportunities to purchase high-tech weapons. So I think there's more for the Israelis to gain. Uh, than the Saudis, uh, uh, but eventually uh, this is part of the deal now to be transactional where both sides can benefit and uh, we'll see what will happen. The money is a big part of the deal, but it's not the only significant part. There are, at least, three other key factors worth our time. A security pact for the Saudis, nuclear issues, and the elephant in the room, Palestine. Let's start with a security pact for the Saudis. Back to Gerald Firestein. At the beginning, it seemed like that the Saudis were looking for, you know, a a NATO treaty-like... As talks got underway, Saudi Arabia let it be known that it would want a security pact, not with Israel, but with the US. You know, with Article 5 requirements on the part of the US that we would come to the defense of the Article 5 agreement that the Saudis sought and which MBS requested of President Biden during his visit to Riyadh in July 2022 is a reference to a clause in the NATO treaty, 
which states, quote, the parties agree that an armed attack against one or more of them in Europe or North America shall be considered an attack against all, end quote. In short, if Saudi Arabia was attacked, the US would be obliged to rush to their aid and bring along some big guns. The incentive for the US was that in return for the security pact, the Saudis would agree to normalise with Israel, bringing together the US's two strongest allies in the region. It was a pretty big ask by the Saudis. Um, I think it was it was made pretty clear that is absolutely a non-starter. They would never get 67 votes in the Senate to approve that kind of a treaty commitment uh, to Saudi Arabia. So the last thing that I've seen has been agreements more or less in line with the kinds of defense commitments that we've made to Japan and to South Korea, which are less than Article 5, but certainly provide strong uh, commitments on the part of the United States that we would come to Saudi Arabia's defense if it were if it were attacked. A deal similar to the kind the US has with Japan and South Korea would provide the Saudis with some military and economic privileges, but would fall a fair way short of the NATO-style agreement they were seeking. A recent letter sent on October 4th to President Biden and signed by 20 US senators showed a clear level of concern about a security pact with Saudi Arabia and what it may look like. It read, We are concerned about reports that Saudi Arabia is requesting a security guarantee from the United States in exchange for normalisation with Israel. Historically, security guarantees through defence treaties have only been provided to the closest of US allies, democracies that share our interests and our values. Further, The U.S. has long refrained from committing our nation to treaty-backed security guarantees in the volatile Middle East, a region rife with conflict. In perhaps an attempt to speak directly to querying U.S. senators during his Fox interview, MBS attempted to pull at their heartstrings, their weapons manufacturing and exporting heartstrings. We are the biggest buyer from uh, American armament manufacturing. I believe Saudi Arabia alone is bigger than the next five buyers from uh, America. So, so you, it's, Saudi Arabia is critical in your armament import economically. And we have a lot of security military ties that really strengthen the position of Saudi Arabia in the Middle East and strengthen the position of America globally, especially in the Middle East. You don't want that to be shifted. You don't want to see Saudi Arabia shifting the armament from America to other uh, Place So that document, it will strengthen that, it will strengthen the interests of America, security interests, uh, military interests, and also economic interests, and also it will save effort and headache from the Saudi side of not switching to other places. For the US as a whole, two strong allies in the region, joined together by a treaty, would certainly be welcomed. It would also be welcomed by the Biden administration, electorally speaking. Well, I think that the domestic political angle in the U.S. can't be ignored. I think that definitely the Biden administration would see uh, this deal as a a plus. I think that it challenges Trump uh, because we know that that Trump tried desperately uh, to get Saudi Arabia into the Abraham Accords, failed um, at the end. Uh, And so for Biden to be able to say, well, you know, here's another a thing that uh, Trump identified as uh, as a key objective that he couldn't get, but I did. 
So, uh, you know, so certainly that's that's an important part of it. In recent years, the general theme of the U.S. has been a gradual but undeniable withdrawal from the Middle East. Into that space has crept China and Russia, both who have sought to grow relations with Saudi Arabia, which has set alarm bells ringing in Washington. There's been talk that one of the one of the aspects of, of the U.S. demands in the negotiations is that is that Saudi Arabia takes steps away from China. Now, what that means in, in practice is unclear. I mean, certainly nobody in the U.S. anticipates or, or would expect that Saudi Arabia would abandon its uh, economic relationship with China. It's, uh, it's a key component of the Saudi economy. Uh, but uh, I do think that that they would like to see, you know, certainly no further discussion about Chinese involvement in security and, and arms sales and in the sale of dual use kinds of things where, you know, where certainly we have concerns about the ability of the Chinese to use uh, certain, you know, kinds of tech transfers in ways that threaten um, U.S. you know equipment. Uh, this is a big issue, as you know, with the F-35 sale to to, uh, to the UAE. I think that the U.S. would like some assurances in exchange for you know whatever defense arrangements we make with the Saudis uh, that we're not going to wake up one morning and see uh, the Chinese building a base next to ours. And Joe Macaron again. The U.S. want to reassert its influence in the region in general, and uh, they don't have a clear policy now, neither on Iran, neither on any issues. So they look at this as a way to to show the Gulf that uh, they can have this alliance with Israel, which is continuing what the Trump administration did before. But if the Biden administration expectation that the Saudis will will stop dealing with with China, they they're gonna be very uh, misled on this. For them, it's a major big market, uh, whether for oil, whether for uh, other stuff. Even after Biden came, they they met already uh, with them on the, on the top leadership. They're going to continue doing this. Um, the Saudis' uh, policy now have have evolved to a more trying not to be too close to the Americans, trying to open to to everyone economically, and they're going to continue doing that with China. They don't they don't rely on China a lot on on weapons. A little bit they started, but it's not a major. They continue to be a major uh, U.S. Uh, arms uh, importer. They're going to continue in, in the foreseeable future. But uh, I don't see that this deal with the, with the Israeli will uh, will make uh, Saudi less engaged with China. And they made it clear. The U.S. is also deeply engaged in our second issue, nuclear issues. As well as a security pact with the U.S. in exchange for normalization with Israel, Saudi Arabia is also seeking U.S. support to develop a nuclear program in the country. These ambitions are not new. Riyadh has publicly expressed its nuclear energy ambitions since the Bush era, but have, to date, failed to agree to US demands on the issue. Gerald Feierstein. Uh, the US policy on cooperation on civilian nuclear programs has been what's called a one 2 agreement. The Emiratis have signed a one 2 agreement the Saudis have refused. The 123 agreement relates to Section 123 of the U.S. Atomic Energy Act, which refers to the, quote, conclusion of peaceful nuclear cooperation agreement for significant transfers of nuclear material or equipment from the United States, end quote. The issue 
has been the fuel cycle. You know, with the one, two, three agreement, uh, parties agree that they will not reprocess or enrich uh, uranium. In basics, the fuel for nuclear energy is provided by the US, and when it has been spent, it is then returned to the US. The Saudis have been clear that they want control of the entire fuel cycle. Uh, and so that's a, a challenge uh, for the US. If if we go forward uh, with this agreement, and part of it is cooperation on civilian nuclear, uh, I would anticipate that a big part of the debate is whether we can rely on the uh, on the Saudis not to try to develop a weapons capability. Trusting that the Saudis would not try to develop nuclear weapons would be a big ask for US lawmakers, especially when you consider the Crown Prince's recent remarks when Brett Bayer of Fox News asked him what would happen if Iran obtained a nuclear weapon. If they get one, will you? If they get one, we have to get one for security reasons, for balancing power in the Middle East, but we don't want to see that. Again, the U.S. senators in their letter to the president had something to say about this. The Saudi government is also reportedly seeking U.S. support to develop a civilian nuclear program and to purchase more advanced U.S. weaponry. While we should seriously consider whether it is in U.S. interest to help Saudi Arabia develop a domestic nuclear program, we should always maintain the high bar of the gold standard 1-2-3 agreement and insist on adherence to the additional protocol. The final and perhaps most significant sticking point is the Palestinian question. On August 3rd of this year, Palestinian Foreign Minister Riyad al-Maliki addressed a gathering of journalists in Ramallah. Uh, Saudi Arabia has put uh, different conditions uh, regarding normalization. Uh, one of these uh, conditions is really, uh, you know, the end of Israeli occupation and uh, the materialization of the state of Palestine. Uh, if that's really the case, then uh, that's really very important. I hope that the Saudis will stick to that to that position and, uh, uh, you know, not to uh, yield to any kind of pressure, intimidation coming from the Biden administration or any other. uh, uh. With the first round of normalizations, much was said about the betrayal of the Palestinians. Many people spoke of how the normalization agreements between Israel and the UAE, Bahrain and Morocco sidelined the Palestinians and their struggle, how it would be a green light for further repression by Israel. These voices were not heeded, and the deal went ahead, as did greater oppression of the Palestinians. Joe Macaron. Obviously, the Palestinians are are asking more than the Americans and the Israelis are willing to give. Netanyahu is saying that this coalition will crumble, so they had the list and give it to the Americans and Saudis. The Israelis are already saying... Uh, this is a bit too much. So they might release some money. Some There are some reports that some money has been already released. Palestinians are asking more control of their territories, uh, more symbolic indication of a state, even if there's no state going to be announced anytime soon. The Israeli can sign on, on, on this. It's hard to, to, to foresee that anytime soon. This time round, the issue of the illegal Israeli occupation and the rights of Palestinians is pretty firmly on the table. 
certainly more firmly than last time. But there are complications. The ailing king of Saudi Arabia, King Salman, has made many declarations expressing fervent support for Palestine and Palestinian rights. His son is somewhat less committed. The problem is the Saudi leadership, especially MBS, is not a big fan of uh, Mahmoud Abbas. So it was very clear in the last century, deal of the century and after. But for, for them now, they are he's the representative now, and they have to deal with him. For MBS, it would appear that while securing a lasting settlement for the Palestinians would be desirable, he doesn't have the same enthusiasm as the king. In short, it's generally understood that he would not kibosh the entire normalization process for the Palestinians, or perhaps more accurately, the Palestinian leadership. This does pose a domestic issue for him. Support for the Palestinians remains strong among Saudis back home. In August of this year, the Washington Institute conducted a poll of Saudis on their opinions. In a relatively lukewarm response, around a third of respondents said that they would support some initial steps short of official relations. And just 14% would give Israeli civilian airplanes permission to fly over Saudi Arabia to other destinations. On religious matters, opposition was higher. 46% of respondents believed it was important for new Israeli guarantees of Muslim rights at Al-Aqsa Mosque and Al-Haram Al-Sharif in Jerusalem. According to the poll, Saudis do share the low opinion of their crown prince when it comes to the Palestinian leadership with just 15% having a somewhat positive view of the Palestinian Authority. Convincing the Saudi youth that normalisation is a good idea could be MBS's biggest challenge. The 2023 Arab Youth Survey of 18 to 24-year-olds suggested that only 2% supported normalisation. One Saudi student in Riyadh put it like this. I personally don't want to visit Israel. I support the Palestinian cause and, and support the declaration of a Palestinian state, as my state does. If normalization happens, then I don't care. I am with the state's decision that there should be a Palestinian state. The view back home is something that MBS will have to consider. To betray the Palestinians could have an impact domestically. The Palestinians will also have a role to play here. This time round, they have to get involved. They cannot risk sitting on the sidelines. I mean, obviously, there's lots for the Palestinian Authority to learn in its foreign policy, especially in the last decade. And it needs some, uh, a lot of uh, revival and more, uh, I think, potential new blood. And uh, it's a long issue. But I think the two cases are different because the, the relation between the Palestinian Authority and the UAE was not that great. So that's why they, uh, they didn't have to make the effort at that time, I think. But the Saudis is different than the UAE, so... Uh, the Saudis have made some effort to bring the Palestinians closer to the table. On September 26th, Saudi Arabia appointed an ambassador to the Palestinian territories. They cannot just challenge the, the Saudi, especially that the Saudis are opening up to them for the first time, uh, having an ambassador, so they have to engage them. Uh, but I'm not seeing them uh, really raising the debate, addressing the main issues, having more countries involved. Uh, I don't see them really playing a role to change the narrative a little bit. There's lack of, I think, effort and imagination on this from their side. But yeah, they have no option. They have to 
they have now a voice to sit to the Americans and tell them what they think. So they're going to try as much as they can, but but they are not a player on the table. They don't have an impact. And eventually they have to go with whatever is decided. The risk for the Palestinians is that if they don't get involved, speak with those involved, speak with people who aren't involved but could have influence and make demands, they could get left behind. The decision will, again, be made without them and without anyone taking consideration of what's best for them. Here, the US could be of benefit to the Palestinians. Gerald again. Uh, I think that the Palestinians do recognise that it's in their interest to have their oar in uh, and to try to see you know, how they can leverage uh, this Saudi-Israeli deal to their benefit. There's no question about that. I think also it has to do with the fact that that perhaps while while they're not hugely grateful for the level of support they've gotten from Washington in the Biden administration, nevertheless, I think that they do feel more comfortable with the idea that the Biden administration is sympathetic and supportive of their objectives in a way that the Trump administration was not. The Palestinian issue is a domestic issue for the Saudis in these negotiations. But it's also a complicated domestic issue for the Israelis, or more specifically, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Today, Netanyahu serves at the pleasure of the Israeli people, but also his far-right colleagues, who made it possible for him to be Prime Minister. And these far-right colleagues have strong opinions about the potential for concessions to the Palestinians in exchange for normalisation with Saudi Arabia. His right-wing government, they made it clear that uh, if it was between uh, deal with Saudis and our policy with the Palestinians, we're going to cho- choose our policy with the Palestinians. For them, it's more crucial ideologically, and uh, and, and uh, they don't care much about the Saudi uh, uh, aspect. They care more about the immediate uh, surrounding for them. The far right in Israel have made it perfectly clear. They will not agree to any concessions to the Palestinians. But Netanyahu is not without options, but they do come with risks. So uh, we have the center and the Knesset. They said that we're willing to support the deal, but we're not going to join Netanyahu as the government. So basically, if the deal passed and the right wing resigned, uh, as I said, Netanyahu will uh, have no option but to call for an early election. And uh, there are no guarantees that the election is going to bring another, uh, as we have have saw in the past, another Makeup of the of the Knesset that's uh, easier for uh, uh, for Netanyahu. So um, so I think the instability of the Israeli politics is going to continue regardless. Yes, I mean this is a challenge for Netanyahu how to balance a deal and not to upset uh, his own uh, coalition. And uh, and the Saudis have uh, if they are serious about uh, this issue, I think they should continue pressuring uh, Netanyahu to have if they want to go this way of linking the deal with the normalization deal with the Palestinian, I think they can uh, uh, tactically continue pressuring him uh, to see how much he's serious on uh, uh, on this issue. There is perhaps a third option. But this would require the Palestinians putting a great deal of trust in the Saudis. It would see the Palestinians not making any demands from the normalisation agreement and hoping, without much leverage, that in the future Saudi Arabia could use its new position as a treaty partner with Israel to push for direct talks between Israel and Palestine.
a US-brokered normalization deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel would be pretty monumental. It would change the region and the shape of the region to come. Anticipation is running fairly high, and one of the big questions is, when will it happen? I know in the media there's a lot of uh, frenzy about uh, about this deal, but uh, I'm a little bit on the skeptical side. I think we should wait. There's no deal until the deal is signed. Uh, even if there's some indication from BS, and BS doesn't mean it's going to happen. But obviously the Americans are, are doing their best to push it before the end of the year. Then we'll have to see. The region is starting already in this normalization process. If the Saudis don't sign this year, they're going to sign in one year or two years, or uh, they're going to continue dealing with the Israeli on uh, secretly and not secretly. Uh, but the question is whether we are going to take it publicly and make it official, whether the price is worth it for them and for the other, uh, other involved. The unwritten truth is that Saudi Arabia and Israel have already normalized relations. They haven't written it down on a bit of paper, they haven't signed anything, but everything between the two countries is pretty normal. Now it's down to the diplomats and the negotiators to untangle the web and ensure that Mohammed bin Salman and Benjamin Netanyahu can get their photo opportunity. Final words to Gerald Farstein. Can you get everybody to say yes at the, at the same time? You know, and, and how much... Uh, negotiating flexibility do the parties have? In other words, how much do they want it? And at the end of the day, how far are they willing to go giving up some of their requirements in order to, to get this deal? And the official statements coming out of the U.S. are very circumspect. Um, nobody is saying we're, we're there. Um, you see reports in the, you know, in the Israeli press particularly, uh, there's a framework agreement. We're in the ballpark. Uh, I think that if you looked at the official U.S. response, they said, yeah, you know, the, uh, broadly speaking, uh, there are, you know, uh, pieces uh, that uh, are, are in place, but we're not there yet. This episode of The New Arab Voice was written and produced by me, Hugo Goodrich. Our theme music was by Omar El Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter which you can sign up for. Find the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode and you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis and opinion from the region. <laughs>